0: your favorite stories, again and again you can always find something new to explore.
1: Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high-quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com/justbreakup.
0: That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A I P S T A stories.com/justbreakup. Dipsystories.com/justbreakup. Welcome to Just Break Up, the podcast about love, heartbreak, and all the relationship advice you don't want to hear. My name is Sierra Demolder,
1: And I'm Sam Blackwell.
0: And this week on Head and Heartwork Conversations, we're talking to Camone Felix. Kimon's pronouns are she, her. She is a poet, essayist, former political strategist, author of Build Yourself a Bow, a collection of poetry that was long listed for the 2019 National Book Awards in Poetry. She is also formerly the director of surrogates and strategic communications at Elizabeth Warren for president and is the author of the brand new literary nonfiction collection, Discalculia, a love story of epic miscalculation, easily one of the best books I've read all year. Come We are so thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so
2: much for having me, Sierra. It's so good to be here with you. I love this podcast. I love the vibe. I'm super excited.
0: Yeah. So very quick background. Like we met through the spoken word community, I don't know, a decade plus. Um, and I loved your your poetry work at that time, you know, still do. I just want to say this book blew me out of the water I am so thrilled to talk to you about it, like as a creative, as a fellow writer, and also just like as a person who has had these sort of relationships that unravel in a way that is so revealing. Um, so, you know, it's like your organs get reorganized after a, yeah. a heartbreak <laughs> like this, but um, uh-huh. And so before we dive into this book and, and everything that brought it to life, can you first tell us like a little bit about your background, your professional history, like what led you to this book? Um, and like, also you worked with Elizabeth Warren, who I fucking love. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tell us anything that you want about how you got here today.
1: <laughs> uh-huh.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um...
2: So Sierra, you remember that we met in the slam scene and I was so young. We were all so young. Then. Yes, it's so crazy. So yeah. <laughs> you were on the SUNY Pulp team. And let I me mean, not age ourselves, but it was a bit ago. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, you can age and, me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, I think part of what I learned during that part of my literary career was just like the value of of honesty and the value of telling true stories that have real meaning um we did plenty of metaphorizing and like making metaphors you know there's always a persona poem to be written or made but we also learned i think that our own stories could be really powerful especially when we can take a step back from ourselves and see them kind of objective. Yes. So I kind of left, well, <laughs> I left Slam for many reasons that I know Sierra <laughs> already yep. knows yep. 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 to yep. herself. <laughs> but uh-huh. um part of what leaving meant too was being able to like get more immersed in poetry and in poetic histories and cultures that just teach you different kinds of like crafts and techniques and just show you different kinds of writing. Right. Um, so I spent some time as a political strategist. I spent over a decade as a political strategist. Sometimes suggests, you know, like a
0: semester in college. Yes. But no, Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> An entire decade. Um, I have seen Kimone on television. It's like that type of political strategist, you know. Yeah, love that. I love that. Yeah. Love that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That like it happened, which is
2: wild. Um mostly because I had like worked in schools, I had worked in nonprofits, and I was like, wow, so everybody, everyone's trash under And no <laughs> one can get anything done. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, you Let see how eat. the sausage is made and you <laughs> just you're like, wow, okay. So maybe I need to like let me just unveil, un- unveil the last layer of this. Let me, let me see how government works. Yeah. Turns out it also <laughs> does not. <laughs> so then you're like, oh, maybe I can like help candidates make government work better. And we can do that through like good writing and just good communication strategies yes. in general, like knowing how to talk to people. And that's part of what led me to Elizabeth Warren. I sort of knew that the 2020 race would come and that I would have some opportunities to get on presidential campaigns. And I am, for better or worse, a person who can like not hide her displeasure. I just can't do it. So it's really important <laughs> sure. that I work for people <laughs> that I can stomach. Um otherwise I won't have yes. a job. So I sort of going into 2020 was like there I can only work from some for someone that I can actually tolerate. They're all gonna be distinctly problematic because that's how this all works, right? Um but I read one of Elizabeth Warren's books when I was on my way back from a race in Chicago that I hated, that I hated with my soul. Um and I just I was like you makes sense to me as a person who I should maybe trust with the economy. I don't know. I just, on a bare level, your sense makes sense to mm-hmm. me. Um, and also just in, in her demeanor, or at least what it what it presented to me, what I thought I saw and still do see is someone who is um, interested in being wrong and, like, interested in, like... Mm-hmm really engaging in the repercussions Mm. of being wrong and like with learning some things and like using wrongness as a way forward which is like more philosophical than it is political right um usually only people who like think for a living think that way and i was like oh this merges my interests like i like to think hard and this person seems to also appreciate thinking Mm. hard so if nothing else this could be a good opportunity and you know, whether it's through manifestation or just the way that politics works, they gave me a call. I called them back. I waited two months with no money <laughs> in a Brooklyn apartment, just like I can't get a job because I think I have a job, but I, my job's not started. So I'm going <laughs> to
1: uh-huh. sit
2: here. Um, and then I moved to Boston and it, it truly was some of the greatest, two of the greatest years of of my professional life and that was the same year that uh, I got longlisted for the National Book Awards and I had two of the greatest options in the world which was to go to the award ceremony or be with my campaign and be with my team and I chose to be with my campaign and be with my team because I was like this campaign will never happen again but if I'm lucky and if I like do my job right then like maybe I will be longlisted for something again mm. um and, you know, fingers crossed, but it was a good decision because I definitely it could didn't happen. win, which it could I knew definitely was going to happen. happen. I, was, I was like, I'm not going to win this. <laughs> it worked out. <laughs> didn't win. And I was like, cool. So I like didn't feel like I had to like stress myself out and abandon my my family for this time for three days. So when we lost, um, I was sad And it was painful. We also lost at the, the campaign ended at the very beginning of the pandemic. So we like cleaned up, cleaned Um, out our campaign office and we're like, okay, see you guys tomorrow. We'll go like dissociate and get drunk. It's fine, it'll be fine. And then the next day we couldn't leave our apartments and it was like, I am stuck in Boston. Oh my God. In an apartment by myself. During a deadly pandemic. Yeah. Ooh. Cool, cool, cool. Um, and yeah, <laughs> <it was good. laughs> kind of starting that period that I just, I just knew that like my next step was going to be transitioning back to just being a full time writer. Um, and yeah, I think that's right. a really long answer to the very basic question you asked me. But
0: no. Well, I've always wanted to ask (laughs) you about how you work with Warren. So thank you so much. Um, I remember you posting, I don't know if it was like a community meeting or a staff meeting or what the venue was, but I, Mm -hmm. I remember being like, oh shit, like seeing a picture of Warren, you, she like met with you and a group of other black women Mm -hmm. and you posted it on Twitter or something just being like this is why I believe in her. Like she's here to learn from us, you know, and that's when I was already interested in her as an economist, but then Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, so you're doing some sort of work (laughs) that Mm -hmm. I don't see in other candidates. Anyway, this is not an Elizabeth Warren interview. (laughs) This is much, this is about something that I actually, yeah, still, uh, uh, so excited to dive into this book um, with you. Um, quick question before Sam does his qu- next question: Did mm. how long was this book like brewing in you? Like how long did you? Mm. How long did you carry this book before you birthed it? If that makes sense, <laughs> or like the, I, actually, did you know you were going to write this book? Or yeah,
2: it's crazy. It's actually so wild that you asked that because. I was talking to one of my good friends, probably one of my oldest friends. And I was searching through our emails for something. And I found the first like page of dyscalculia that I sent her. And I was like, in a manic rage, I was like, I think I started something here and like sent it to her. And this was in like (laughs) (laughs) like 2015 or
1: 2016.
2: And it was like, it lived in my, in my, the notes of my phone for a really long time where like things would just happen mm. or I would have like a thought or like a revelation and I would just like put it yes. in my notes. Um, and so it was just, it started then, like not very long after the breakup. And then I just kept kind of like playing at it through these different p- points in my life that followed the campaigns, the moving. And then Maybe halfway through the campaign, I was talking to my agent and she'd seen it and and loved it, but we both were sort of like not really sure what it wanted to be or what it wanted to do. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm. And then I just like was in my apartment in Boston and had a thought and I was like, I think I know, I think I should, I think I should try to see if somebody would want to publish this. And it actually was part of a two book deal in which like it was not the star, you know, and there was no. It's not that the publishers didn't like it or <laughs> or that they didn't love it. <laughs> yeah, it just was like not the thing they were focused on. Um, and admittedly, it looked wildly different than uh, than it did once they once once they actually received the final copy. Um, but the other book, uh, which is a book that I'm working on now, "Let the Poets Govern," was supposed to come before it. And I don't know. I was just like. I think we should flip this. I think this one should come first. I think it's more done than I feel like it is. So they were fine with that. And then I rewrote it about 10 times in the year that it was the year after we, um, that we sold it. And one thing that always felt crazy is that it didn't feel like a long process, even though I rewrote it so many times I was so like motivated by this book that it didn't feel like I wrote it 10 times um, because these were all just like different renditions of the same story. And it was just cool to see it kind of play out. Um, but yeah, I finally knew it was done about a year from to like right now, I guess. And I finished it and I I knew it was done because I finished the last piece and then I cried. And I was like, it's done. And it's like my body knew before
1: mm.
2: my brain do, did where I yes. just I stopped and I cried and I didn't rewrite it again after that. Yeah. Mm.
1: So yeah. Like
2: five years.
1: I, I love that. And I also just to sort of add on to what Sierra said, like loved this book. It was, um, it's fantastic, uh, in many different ways. And as somebody who is, um, a little bit skeptical of poetry uh, because of all of the slams that Sierra made me go to. Uh, uh, like reading this book, heart. I was like, oh, yeah, this is what good poetry feels like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? like, yeah. Uh, I mean, I got that chills reading fair, parts of it. That was a fair assessment. <laughs> um, but I'm really curious because this book is about like so many different things, right? It's about heartbreak, it is about uh, math. Um, it's about poetry, it's about, um, childhood abuse, it's about mental illness. And I'm just Mm -hmm. curious, uh, what made you want to sort of talk about all of those sort of very different yet interconnected things and how did you find a way to do it in a way that feels so like razor focused, that feels like so sharp and, and exactly what it needed to be?
2: Thank you. First of all, I appreciate the close read and the honesty. Like I just, yeah, it was, it was hard. So I feel really grateful <laughs> to hear that you like appreciated it and received so much of what I was trying to do. Um, I think when I was in the process of my breakup, especially after I had gotten Diagnosed um, with bipolar. I felt so kind of. What's the word? Like kind of tickled. Like, like it was kind of funny to me how benign people seemed to think heartbreak was. Mm. Um, mm. And like how, how banal they treated it or no. And I. W- was also really like, perturbed by it. I didn't understand how people could see such a change in one person's life as relatively inconsequential or something they should just get over. And it really started at first as, like, a an attempt to kind of, like, reconcile that confusion. Like, almost like I wanted it to, like, make fun of how People thought about heartbreak. Mm -hmm. Um, because I I write I wrote this in the book, but I remember telling my boss at the time that I had gone Mm -hmm. through a breakup and that this was happening, and she was like, It's okay, just like work harder and you'll feel better. (laughs) I was like (laughs) work through it. Mm -hmm. Uh I was like, Whoa, like first of all. The way capitalism just spoke, <laughs> like... Oh, my God. You know, <laughs> Seriously. <what is> <laughs> um, like you thought you were saying something, but that was literally just capitalism speaking for you. <laughs> 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 so absurd to me that someone's actual dead-ass response to someone being like, I think I'm unwell because I just experienced a really big trauma was like, work harder. It'll feel mm. better. <laughs>
1: yeah. Just yeah. wild. <laughs>
2: Like what? And I realized then too, like how much of my life and how much of just the the women that I know, the black women, the queer women that I know, how much of the response to their trauma has been that as well, has Mm. been this like, well, if you work harder, well, if you try harder, you know, try harder to fit in, try harder to like not stand out, to not be so queer. And then, you know, you'll get over all the pain that you feel. Um, and yeah, I guess that was where the desire really started. And I was just so fucking mad that people kept treating me like it wasn't a big deal. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was really confused as to why it was such a big deal. Like, I also just didn't understand it. Sure. Um, so that's a big part of where it started and then. I think naturally, I think as writing allows you to do the more questions I was asking myself in the writing, the more answers I was getting. So every time I would ask myself, you know, like, mm. well, why why don't people understand that it's a big deal? Or like, why, do, why are people acting like I'm crazy or erratic when what's happening to me is mm. what's crazy and erratic? Um, mm. I've felt... Every time I asked myself that question, I would, I would get an answer, naturally. And then I think part of what I enjoy about poetry and how my craft works is that, like, I try to answer every question with a question, and the more questions you ask, the more you end up with, right? You just get, like, further mm-hmm. and further deeper into whatever you're trying to investigate by asking. And so I think that's kind of how all of these different pieces of dyscalculia came together, the mental health and bipolar stuff and the childhood trauma and the sort of like liminal cost of sexual assault across all of these different ages. It all came together because in asking myself the question of like, why doesn't this pain matter? And why doesn't my pain matter? And why doesn't like my capital M pain, you know, which is like the Black pain and the queer pain and the neurodivergent pain. And like, why don't these sort of capital identities and their pains matter? And that's kind of how I, like I, the answer to all the question was just all of these different elements, um, mm. which is also how it became a memoir and like not autofiction or not like memoir in mm-hmm. verse. Because when I realized that like my life As an example, not as an exception, but my life as an example, was able to answer all of those questions, at least through the lens that I saw them, then like there was no other way to tell the story than to tell it, you know, in prose and to tell Mm -hmm. it with as much candidness as I could while like maintaining the urgency of poetry.
1: Mm -hmm. Oh my
0: gosh, that is so spot on, spot on you accomplished that for sure mm-hmm. um so this this book quick side note the the title is dyscalculia no mm-hmm. dyscalculia mm-hmm. here we go this calculia um i'm trying to put the accent on the cal and that's throwing me off anyway but that is a hot. learning disorder specific to math correct um correct and so we have this, that's sort of a framework for you throughout the book to, to, you use that as a metaphor, or as a framework to lean back on throughout the book to tell a story. The subtitle of the book is a love story of epic miscalculation. And I think it's fair to say that one of the core pillars of this book is this huge heartbreak, this huge unraveling from this relationship that you experienced, the, the, the threads that led up to it from your childhood, the cracks in the facade, the unraveling and the aftermath. Um, and this book is structurally very, very unique. Um, it is to describe it for our listeners. It's a series. It's not It's very poetic, um, as Sam and I have both said, but it's not quite like a book in verse um, or a novel in verse. It's these sort of (laughs) vignettes, um, longer and shorter from anywhere from a sentence to several pages. But the one thing I just want to say before I ask the next question is that the storyline, the the thread throughout is so connected, so Mm -hmm. strong. Um, I didn't feel like I was jumping from a poem to a a different poem to a different poem like I have in other novels in verse um, or, Mm -hmm. or you know, other novels by poets, I should say. Um, This is uh, it's. It reads so fluidly. Um, I was so impressed and I truly enjoyed the structure of it. Um, I will, I'll read a quick um, excerpt from it uh, and it, it references um, a mathematic idea that you, you refer back to a couple times that I want to ask you about. Um, you write... A fractal is a never ending pattern, infinitely complex. It re- reproduces itself in perpetuity in everything, hiding around and inside of us like Russian dolls, like a forest bordered by and stuffed full of with sisters of trees, a river that splits and meets itself in the mouth of another river, a simple equation processed over and over again, like a stamp, like your DNA, like your brain, like your lungs, like a mother. And you use this idea of fractals, this repeating pattern to sort of reference um, patterns in relationships, in desire, in yourself. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how you use that metaphor?
2: Yeah. Um, So uh, I really like math. And um, (laughs) (laughs) I will say that my sort of like favorite application of math is to science and particularly to like non-physical sciences and metaphysical sciences and you know the astros and the likes and so much of what you can understand about math and science at the same time without having to have two different sort of educations is that everything in our world is is a pattern um Mm. and that patterns are reproduced in our physical bodies and in the physical world around us and that that mirroring is likely likely interacts with you know the external universe and the parts of the universe that we can't touch right that there are probably patterns there um And I've been, for years, really interested in, like, the way that people and thinkers, particularly philosophers, how they have kind of, like, utilized that knowledge and, like, utilized that fact. Um, And in this particular religion that I highlight in the book um, that no longer exists... They were focused on numbers and on the patterns of numbers and how the patterns of numbers create patterns and sounds. Um, and so much of even now, like so much of understanding my diagnosis as a bipolar person and, and a person with ADHD and <laughs> whatever else is on the list is in seeing those how the patterns of my actions has have reproduced over time and reproduced mm. um, sometimes the same outcomes, but sometimes wildly different outcomes based mm. on, you know, di- different variables, whether it's, you know, my physical surroundings or, you know, who, the people who are in my life at a time, or even like how my body might be working at a certain time. Um, and it's sort of in asking myself all of those questions that brought me to all those answers, like almost all the answers were about patterns, right. Was it, were about like, well, where have you seen Mm, this before mm -hmm. in your life and when Mm. have you reacted this way before? And when did it, when did you feel this particular pain before? And, you know, if you've done psychotherapy, right. Like this is not a unique idea. That's what therapy is. It's asking you to associate what's happening in the present to whatever has happened in the past and finding patterns. Um, and so as a person who's not a therapist and as a person who's not a mathematician or a scientist, I needed <laughs> to, to ground that instinct and that 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 like instinctual theory in something that has been researched and something that kind of like does have authority, which is science and math. And, you know, the way that philosophy has worked with it. So that's why I brought these people and their voices and their ideas in um, because they like help me get at what I'm trying to get out without having to prove too much.
0: Mm. It, yeah, I really enjoyed that. And to your point about, you know, where's, where's this reaction coming from? Um, you write about what was stirred in you when you met this ex- this this love of yours that we call x in the book Mm -hmm. and when you when you met him something something was stirred in you something was scared something was drawn (laughs) out into the light um can you tell me more about that experience and sort of like what what about his specific offering of love like rattled rattled something in you
2: yeah yeah Well, you know, the thing about being young is that like, you are like more, um, I felt like what my child self had been like longing for, for a long time, I met in this person, right? Which is a a person who like would be protective, a person who Like wanted to prioritize me and like who thought that I was important enough to you know to to be there right and to want to love Mm -hmm. and to want to love aggressively and loudly um and I was also like my self-esteem was really low frankly right like I Mm -hmm. like was not doing what I wanted to be doing I felt really far from my goals and like really discouraged and he was also in that place so I didn't feel judged by him I felt like we could like you know like get ourselves together together and like lift each other up you know the whole like we're gonna be strong together and like yeah we, you know yeah. stupid shit um <laughs> but, <laughs> <laughs> but I think also because he was a musician and because he was a Producer And at that time, I was really interested in singing and I wanted to be a singer. Um, he felt like a like a pathway, like yes. towards a better part of myself or an idealized part of myself. Um, mm. And I think that's what was really exciting. Like. In some ways, like in retrospect, I'm sure you both have experienced this in your in past relationships I think so much of what I loved about him was pretty selfish, right? Mm. Like I loved a lot of, I loved the way that he treated me and the way that he seemed Mm -hmm. to feel about me and like what, how it helped me validate myself. But Mm. I sort of recognized this like a year into it that I I was like, I'm not really like that into who he is right now. Like I'm into this idealized Mm -hmm. version of him That could be possible, but I'm only in control of half of that. Um, Right. So, yeah, I think it was like just, I was really vulnerable, and, you know, all of my dreams seemed to come true in this person, even though, like, they weren't. They were just like
0: there. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) for sure. in the house
1: get warm weather ready with quince go to quince.com slash just for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns that's quince.com slash just break to get free shipping and 365 day returns quince.com slash just i wanted to actually talk with you about vulnerability because there's a lot in this book that is about sort of the double-edged sword that is vulnerability right where it like opens us up to um authentic connection and being able Mm -hmm. to like get into who we are and what we need and also Mm -hmm. like people can use it right or or in in bad ways or it might what i love i'm actually going to read from the book where you say like I was vulnerable in a way I had not known. And once vulnerable, I was less capable of playing the versions of myself that I had learned to play to get through under his Mm -hmm. love. I was a werewolf at the turn of the moon and I let the sun in Mm. me set to it, which is like, first of all, great poetry, beautiful, loved (laughs) it. Amazing line. Um, But also about like being vulnerable also asks us to let go of the things that we had told ourselves we're making us safe. Right. It, it Mm -hmm. says like the mask is not actually the thing that's keeping you safe and now you have to get rid of it. And that can be such a terrifying experience. So like, I'm curious how you are thinking about vulnerability now, especially since you're releasing this book to the world, that is like the deepest parts of you to like people who are going to read it and like post shit on Goodreads about it. Like, how are you thinking about your own vulnerability now in this (laughs) moment? Uh, as somebody who's publishing this book and as somebody who's gone through this whole epic sort of story about self-expression, self-exploration, and leaning into vulnerability?
2: That's a great question. Um, Thank you (laughs) both uh, for making me face some real (laughs) truths.
1: That's what we do on this podcast. Sorry.
2: (laughs) Uh, Man, vulnerability. So, okay, here's what I'll start with, right? I think that part of what I learned about that relationship and why I don't have like terribly negative feelings about it anymore is because I think that different forces in your life, whether you think of them as like ancestral, or if you believe in God, or just in sort of like, you know, the idea of physics, right, that things move along, like they're this person in this relationship came into my life to ask me to undertake a different kind of vulnerability that was supposed to make me a different person. And it did, right? Like there is Mm -hmm. no way I would have found out that I was bipolar. There's no way that I would have found out if this thing didn't happen, if I didn't have that particular, you know, like groundbreaking moment where I had no choice, but to sort of like submit myself to this, like those things that information has made my life, uh, safer because even though like my bipolar is not necessarily like gone or even like easily or well managed, what I do know is more about myself that lets me know like how I live and how I work and like how to love, right? Like what Mm. kind of love I really need. And I would not have known that without, this experience so I get I know that vulnerability is necessary and and has a place however having to actually do this part of the, <laughs> <sighs> however
1: <laughs> yeah right I was like okay here we go <laughs> uh,
2: this fucking part yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, I wasn't, it's fucked up too. Cause like, it's not my first published book. So I think I sort of assumed that it was going to feel similar. And like, I didn't know what to be prepared yeah. for. Um, But yeah, I, I will say this. I'm really glad that I quit my job. Uh, Because (laughs) I don't think I could have um, been going, been going through this process, um, and trying to focus, and all the things that are already hard to do because of my diagnosis. Like I couldn't, I just couldn't have done it, and like stayed any more sane than I am. Um, But I'm trying to lean into that belief that something special or good will come out of this anxiety and just Mm. the fear that people are going to like hold this work and like not be nice to it or like not take care of it or i don't know i was just telling a friend at lunch actually that like I'm trying to separate what my child self is yearning for versus mm-hmm. what I as an adult want for this book. And I'm like, your child sure. self wants validation. Sure. Like it wants some <sighs> award so that it feels like your story was like good and mattered. Oh my but God, like your so adult real. self knows that that is not how any of this shit works. And if you set yourself <laughs> sure. up for that shit, like your, your child self's g- gonna be let down anyway. So it's been requiring a lot of like very hard, Emotional work and resetting um and bringing a lot of things to the forefront, like just realizing what my community is now made of versus what it was made of when we were younger and what support looks like now is like adult writers versus what it looked like when we were in college. And it just, yeah, it's this, this round of vulnerability is kicking my ass. Mm. Yeah, well, we thank
0: you for it. We thank mm-hmm. you know, this is. Thank you for even being vulnerable about the process of vulnerability that is involved in putting something out there in the world. Like I think especially in this time of access where where we have not only access to so many great pieces of literature and art and music and et cetera, but we also have access to people. You know, we have access to you and your Goodreads and whatever. And I think our society is a little drunk on that access Mm -hmm. and are forgetting the, the great act of courage and vulnerability that it takes to put something out in the world so that other people then can feel comforted by the representation that you are providing in this
1: book. One of the big things in the book and sort of what we've been talking about in this whole conversation too, is about the fact that you were diagnosed with bipolar, not necessarily as a result of this relationship, but like it was one of the Mm -hmm. things that led you to a point where you sort of knew that you needed to, to sort of seek help and found somebody who was able to accurately diagnose you. And I'm, Mm -hmm. I'm curious, um, like this is a an important representation around like misdiagnosis or also like missed diagnosis. And mm-hmm. having been through this, what would you say to folks who may be sort of struggling with something similar where it's like, my experiences aren't being believed or I'm looking around mm-hmm. me and I'm like, how are people experiencing heartbreak in a way that isn't totally destroying them, right? And being like, what do I there has to be something else here that I'm missing. Like, what would you say to folks who are experiencing something like that? That's a great question. Um,
2: I think the first thing I would say is like, you should trust what you feel and what you know about like your own emotional regulation and your your ability to do so, right? Like... Mm. What I learned the most in this process of trying to answer the question of like, why is this driving me literally insane? And other people, I see them like eat eat some chocolate, drink a glass of wine. (laughs) And somehow the next day for like out at the bar, like what somebody let me know how y'all do that. And what I learned from just like Mm -hmm. the urgency of that question was that simply how urgent it felt meant that there was an answer out there for me that was unique to me, that it that had to be, right? Because mm. other people, you know, many people think, see and think of heartbreak very similarly to each other, right? Where they're like, yeah, well, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna call my friends and I'm gonna call six of them and they're gonna rally around me. And, and I've heard so many people offer the same answer. And I'm like, wow, that like really worked for you. And you've never once questioned, like, why am I doing this wrong? Like, you've always felt like you did it right. And then the people Mm. that I would meet who also seemed to have a hard time or could at least relate to the urgency of my question were always people who were mentally ill. So I was like, okay, well, (laughs) there's a corner (laughs) here. And I Uh think I think that that's the power of like questioning and asking yourself questions and like not rushing to conclusions too quickly or letting other people rush you to conclusions like someone telling you that you're fine does not mean that you're fine like do you feel if you don't Mm. feel fine then you're probably Mm. not fine Mm -hmm. um and like asking yourself why you're not fine is a more useful like action than telling yourself that you have to be fine and you need to just get up and do it um which is the mistake i made and ultimately what made me you know, what made that sort of pivotal moment happen. Um, And it's taken me a long, long time since to learn that, like, me not feeling okay and me not being okay, like, is valid. And if nothing else, if you are a person who's been misdiagnosed or misdiagnosed or just feels unsure, like, you deserve the clarity of mind to be able to be kind to yourself. Like, having the diagnosis itself allows me to say like, oh, I'm not well. And I know this because someone gave me a, a framework that's that sort of defines all of my symptoms and they're all there. I see them. Mm-hmm. I know other people who have them. I know other people who have the same sort of like inabilities or, or abilities or struggles that I do. So that means I'm allowed to say I'm not well and these are the accommodations I need. And if I had that mm. when I was a kid, when I was in school, like my education, I would have had a better educational experience. And now like that's the gift I want to give myself. So, yeah, I would just tell them like, you know, you're not well or you at least know what you know. Like go answer your questions and like mm. do that however you can with whoever you can. And when you get mm. the answer, like then take care of yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love mm. that.
0: So last book question before we just ask our wrap up questions, but I I literally was reading, I was finishing this book on a couch, on my my couch and my wife was like reading across from me and I made an audible gasp when I turned the page and (laughs) got to the page that said, when you're healed, you tell the story differently. And then on the other page it said, something I didn't write the other quote down, but like once I loved a man so much, it made me sick or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I had a physical reaction to this line. When you're healed, you tell the story differently. Mm-hmm. And I just, you know, there are so many staggering things about this book. Your, you know, razor sharp imagery, uh, how well you tie these timelines together. Also like the honesty and accountability you take in the book is unnerving at times, like in, in a good way, in like a humbling way, Um, how you tell the story of this love unraveling. And I just, if you could speak to any of that, particularly the quote, When you're healed, you tell the story differently because I think so much about the great heartbreaks of my life or the great repositionings of my world Mm -hmm. and how I defined them then, whereas how I tell that story now, Mm -hmm. I have a lot more grace for everyone involved. And I also have a lot more honesty, you know, Mm -hmm. so if you could Mm -hmm. speak to any of that.
2: Yeah, for sure. I think I think you're 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 spot on. I mean, the reason why the personal accountability felt so important and like necessary to the story that I was trying to tell is because like that is ultimately the thing that changes. Right. Like what happened to me happened to me. Like those facts, for the most part, did not change. Right. Not the ugly parts and not the good Mm -hmm. parts. But what changed was, like, how I saw myself in those moments and what I understood about who I was in those moments. And even just even just recognizing that, like, because I was vulnerable in a way that I hadn't been before, because this was effectively, like, my first real love, right? I was, like, 21, like this is in, especially in mental illness, but particularly bipolar disorder, 21, 22 is kind of when your disorder is is said to peak, or at least when it's said to like really sort of like take over. And Mm. if I knew what I, if I knew then what I know now, I'd have known that the minute he and I started to like spiral, I was going to spiral. And the minute that we broke up, Especially even if none of the wild things that happened happened, I was definitely gonna be in a in a manic episode or a mixed episode. If I knew that, I probably wouldn't have, you know, that really pivotal moment wouldn't have happened, right? Would have protected myself from all of that, probably would have been in treatment. And what that allows me to to know both about my healing and about this the situation is that like while it's true that I loved him because how could I not have and have had that experience it's also true that like the part of me that loved him in that way like does not exist anymore in part because like that Mm. person is Mm. in treatment and that person um like understands more about how I worked then even just the fact of Sam going back to the earlier conversation we were having about like how how I unmasked and kind of like came undone, right? Like so much of what vulnerability forces you to do or allows you to do is to um, see yourself most clearly, right? Um, You stop, I have actually a pretty funny anecdote really quickly that I'll throw in here. My now fiance, she, when we first started dating, um, I love this story. She, She like would hear me on the phone or would like, come out with me to like hang out with my friends. And she would be like, you just like, I love everything about you. You're absolutely perfect. And also you do this thing where you perform all the time. Like, did you know that you did that? Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, I knew that I, I know that I do that, but I didn't think anybody else knew that I did that. And she was like, no, I know that you do it and I'm exhausted for you. Mm-hmm. Like it makes me tired because you seem so tired. You should know that you don't have to do that. And I was like. Wow. What the. How dare you. (laughs) 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 She was absolutely. (laughs) Completely. She was completely. Completely right. And through that process. Of her saying that. And me realizing. That like. Oh you're right. I don't have to perform. It turned out. That like a bunch of that performing that I was doing similar to what was happening in my old relationship was masking. There would be times where I'm like in an episode or I'm just really agitated or physically not able to be there. And because I don't want anybody to think I'm mean or that I don't, I'm not paying attention to them or that I don't like them. I go into this like overly performative thing where I'm like super animated in the center of attention. Um, But that's not really what I want to do. So I think like, This is what vulnerability allows for. And like, this is what honesty and accountability allows for all in the same when they all get put in the same bowl. Right. Is that like you get to see yourself through yourself and you get to kind of strip down some of those pieces that maybe aren't really you and that don't really belong to you. And by like being accountable to some of the things that happened in that relationship, while not at all excusing any of the things that the other people may have done, it allows me to say, I don't think I'm that person anymore. This is how I love now. This is the kind of love I need now. And if I keep being accountable through that process, then like that love can never get stale. Right. So I feel a lot more like stable Mm -hmm. and comfortable in the relationship I'm in now and a lot more like faithful to the future. Like I know that I can see it because the person who I was, who wouldn't able have been able. I know who she was. I know why she did what she did and I trust her now. So yeah.
0: Well, just congratulations in general. Um, Dyscalculia is masterful. It's, I felt, um, you know, how about this to our Just Breakup listeners, if you have ever had a breakup, (laughs) um, if you've ever had a (laughs) moment in your life um, that unraveled you and you had to, you had to take your, the pieces left over and figure out who you were, um, you're going to love this book. And I love the compassion that you talk about that come on with, because that's, that's also the icing on the cake of this book for me is that there's accountability, but there's a ton of compassion and, um, growth. And I just, I can't speak h- more. I can't speak highly enough of this book. Uh, dyscalculia comes out February 14th. You can get it at your local bookstore. Um, at any time. you can, um, Pre-order it now if you're. St- I think this episode comes out a couple days early, but yeah, it comes out on February fourteenth. Congratulations, Camon! You have made a masterpiece. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, so we're gonna wrap up this interview with the same three questions that we ask all of our interviewees. First, what is a piece of relationship advice that you used to believe but you no longer subscribe to? I
2: used to believe that us that difficulty is a sign of, um, strength or longevity. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I now know that. You mm, fundamentally yep. <laughs> untrue. It, yeah. it definitely does not have to be. <laughs> if you are on the struggle yeah. bus with somebody, get the fuck off. You don't have yes. to do that. It's not necessary. <laughs> no. That's perfect.
1: That's real. <laughs> That's real. All right. The next question that we ask folks is, uh, Every episode, we give out a blind date to our listeners, which is something that we're really into now. We were really into something that we think that our audience is going to really love. So we're going to ask you to give the blind date for this episode.
2: Okay, so I have two blind dates. This is probably really random, but whatever. That's fine. Um, I was just in Mexico City. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) I was just in Mexico City, um, and I truly saw some of the greatest visual art I've ever seen in my life. Um, I truly think that you can see a lot of this work just by going to Google, like check out some of the collections of the um, contemporary art museums and the local contemporary art museums in like Mexico city and Oaxaca and Guadalajara. Like if you are into visual art and just art at all, um, like Latin American art, contemporary Latin American art needs to not pass you by mm. right now. Mm. Um, and then I would say there's a book coming out soon called To the Realization of Perfect help of Perfect helplessness by Robin Cost Lewis. Um uh it'll have been out by the time this episode comes out. I have not read it yet, but it's a book I'm really really looking forward to. Robin Cost Lewis is one of my favorite poets um mm. and like one of my favorite thinkers and archivists and yeah, um I'm just really into like the art bag right now. So yeah. Oh, and that's if you awesome. like my book, um, and you like fiction, there is a book called Cold Enough for Snow, uh, which is by Jessica Jessica Oh Oh, oh? Um I can't remember where she's from, but um Oh she's an I'll show you writer, and it's truly one of like the coolest coolest novels I've ever written. It's like a hundred pages. Just get into it.
0: Sweet. So oh, Awesome. Definitely (laughs) will. All right. And lastly, where can people find you right now and how can they support you? Um, You
2: can find me uh, probably in most of the places where you find other people. um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm trying to think I'm like I don't know maybe I'll leave Twitter probably not. yeah I know right
0: Um <laughs> That's
1: yeah, we recorded this in I know, November yeah, friends
0: really, really hard to make
1: friends. yeah so who knows what's going to happen <laughs> when this <laughs> actually <sexual laughs> airs
0: yeah if I have by then you can't hold me yeah, yeah yeah
2: yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so at c-a-m-o-n-g-h-n-e is usually my tag name and you can support me by pre-ordering this book yeah
1: awesome whatever
0: books are sold all right, come on, thank you so much for being here. I'm so thrilled to have our paths cross in this way again. I am so honored to get to read this book a little bit early. I'm going to rave about it when it comes out um, and when we air this episode. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, friends, make sure to stay tuned for more Head & Heart Work conversations on our primary feed every other Thursday. And if all else fails,
1: just break up.